0: That we have been in uh, since we started last year. Acts chapter twenty-two is where we're going to be today. Will you guys turn the lights back up on the stage for me? Thank you. By the way, if you ever, if you've ever thought when approaching the Bible, uh, man, I want to read the Bible, but it. I don't know. It doesn't make sense to me. I don't know how to do it. Let me commend to you the the group that that puts those videos together, The Bible Project. They have tons of videos just like that, exploring books of the Bible and biblical themes. They have a reading plan uh, that is even available on an app. Uh, Very helpful. Uh, Check out The Bible Project. Uh, I'm a big fan of uh, a lot of their resources. So, Um, But, so we're turning the corner, Uh, we are entering the last section of the book of Acts, Uh, and this, as you just saw, this section details Paul's uh, trials, his travel to Rome, Uh, and a lot of these chapters are very similar, uh, particularly chapters 22 through 26, and so we're going to summarize, these chapters contain five of Paul's trials, and so we're going to read Acts 22 this morning, Uh, But we're also going to I'm going to pull from some uh, some of other uh, other places that are are Paul's trials So, kind of summarize all of Paul's trials together. So you'll want to keep your Bible open. Uh, But in Acts 22, uh, what's happened is Paul is in the temple. Uh, He has been caught in the temple. He has been accused of things he did not do. And a mob forms and uh, begins beating Paul, seeking to kill him. Uh, the Roman soldiers, uh, they intervene, they, they, they begin taking Paul away, and as they leave, Paul asks to speak to the mob. He asks to speak to the very group of people who has just been uh, beating him within an inch of his life. And, and so here's what he says in Acts chapter 22, verse 1, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, probably Aramaic, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day, I persecuted this way to the death And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now, those who were with me saw the light, but didn't understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I couldn't see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple... I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he shouldn't be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? This man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizen si- citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we look at the life of Paul, would you help us to see our own lives? Lord, even more than that, would you help us to see you? For as we just heard, when the people of Jesus follow the way of Jesus, the story of Jesus begins to look a lot like ours, or our story, rather, looks a lot like yours. And so, Lord, I pray uh, that you would take your word, that you would teach us, and that you would lead us into life. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so for most of the book of Acts, at least since we've seen Paul, uh, we have, uh, Paul, we have seen Paul and his friends on offense. They've been making their way around the Mediterranean. They've been uh, stopping in key cities. They've been addressing, uh, speaking to, to Jews and Gentiles. Uh, and they've been having a great impact But now, and for the last part of this book, we see Paul no longer playing offense, but now playing defense. In fact, that word defense is used seven times in these five chapters to describe what Paul is doing. We saw it in verse 1 of chapter 22. So what is Paul's defense? Uh, What are the plays in his defensive playbook Well, if you were to do a summary of all of his trials, uh, there are a few things that kind of rise to the surface, and uh, three of them uh, we're going to talk about this morning, Uh, three plays out of Paul's defensive playbook, if you will. First, Paul tells his own story, his own personal testimony, and we're going to talk about that. Second, Paul points uh, his opponents to his good life, to the life that he has lived, to the way of life. And then finally, uh, he talks about his good conscience and how he rests on uh, the ultimate judge. Uh, so first, let's talk about Paul's story, his uh, testimony. Uh, Paul shares his conversion story twice in this section, uh, once in chapter 22 before this Jewish mob, and then again in chapter 26 before the Roman governor Festus and Jewish king Agrippa. Uh, and what we see is that you know Paul we know has is no stranger to public speaking. Paul has been doing this he is, he has spent literally thousands of hours talking to people in public about Jesus. but what 's interesting is all the other times that we 've seen Paul, at least when we saw Paul on offense, uh, he was he was preaching right It would be like sermons or or teaching like lessons or lectures. Uh, about Jesus but now here in front of a hostile crowd when Paul is playing defense he shares his own personal testimony why is that well it's hard to know for certain Luke doesn't tell us uh, but we could say that right when uh, that a personal story particularly in front of a hostile crowd uh, often carries more weight than a reasoned argument uh, we would say that's true in general, right? That a story usually carries more weight than a reasoned argument. After all, would you rather watch a movie or C-SPAN? Okay, right? And that's not because uh, we're shallow, you know, unthinking people. It's because, uh, well, we're we're embedded in a story ourselves, right? We uh, the the Bible is not primarily uh, when you think about the Bible. Itself, the Bible is not primarily a reasoned argument, nor is it primarily a a rule book. The Bible itself is a story. It's God's story of redemption. Now, it includes reasoned arguments, and it includes rules, but it is primarily, from first to last, a story. And Paul is situated in that story uh, and so, and just because it's told in story form, just because Paul is telling his own personal story, that doesn't make it any less true. In fact, we could argue that sometimes truths told in story form are more powerful than just baldly stated. And so, here, Paul gives his own conversion story. He tells about his life before Jesus, he tells about the moment that Jesus met him. And then he tells about how Jesus changed his life. And if you, so, so as we go through Paul's story, I want you to be, be thinking about your own. If you're a Christian this morning, what about you? What about your Jesus story? Uh, have you, are you familiar enough with your own uh, conversion, enough with your own Jesus story that you could share it with someone else? And Paul begins with his life before Jesus and you notice uh, that here he connects with his hearers, right? This is a, a, a Jewish mob. Uh, they are very angry. Uh, they are very, uh, they're very angry at Paul. Uh, they, they've been hearing things about Paul from all over the world, and now here he is. And they would like nothing more than for him to die, okay? Uh, and so Paul begins there. And he begins by telling them, one, he calls them fathers and brothers, right? So he he connects uh, with his Jewish heritage, but then he says, "I am, I am just as zealous for God as you are. I understand where you are. Like I, if you, it's hard to be more Jewish than me." Paul says, "I was raised in this city. I was taught by Gamaliel, right? Like you, you can't get better Jewish credentials than the credentials that I've got. I understand a thing or two about God and about our Bible." I understand the law and the prophets. I am zealous for God just as you are. In fact, I'm so zealous. I was so zealous for God that I actually was, I I wasn't just beating people up in the temple. I was going to other cities to arrest them and bring them here. And you you can go ask the high priest. You can go ask the council. They gave me the authority. They gave me the letters. I get it. But on my way to Damascus, I met someone. Or well, it would be more accurate to say that Jesus met him. Paul not Paul didn't go looking for Jesus. Jesus went looking for Paul. And as Paul is going to arrest Christians in Damascus, he's the one who ends up getting arrested by Christ. And again, people can verify his story, the men who were with him. Uh, Ananias, who was well-respected in Damascus, he can verify that these things happened. Here's why this is so powerful. Because Paul was going one way, and then he met Jesus, and it completely changed his life. It completely turned him around. Uh, reading this, I was reminded again of uh, of Mary Magdalene's line from the, the TV series The Chosen. came out this past year. After Mary, has, uh, after Mary has been possessed by demons, uh, she's confronted by one of the priests who tried to help her. And he's just amazed at the change in her life. He tries to, to get an explanation out of her. And all Mary can say is this. I was one way, and now I am completely different. And the thing that happened in between was him that's a Jesus story. That's the story of every person who has ever met Jesus. I was one way, and now I'm another, and the only thing that happened in between was him. And then Paul goes on to talk about how Jesus changes him, his life after Jesus. He mentions how Jesus is sending him far away to the Gentiles, and it's at that point that he loses the crowd uh, because that is too much for them to bear. But what about you? What about your own Jesus story? Uh, If you're a Christian, I want to challenge you at some point this week, if you've never done it before, write down your own personal testimony. Write down your own Jesus story. It doesn't have to be long. It doesn't, uh, one to two minutes will suffice. But if you were going to tell somebody, uh, to, to, you know, if somebody was to ask you, tell me about Jesus, why do you believe in Jesus, write down your own story. Talk about the moment that you met Jesus. It'll be a good reminder for you, and it'll, be, it'll help you to be able to share it with other people. And remember, to elevate Jesus not your own experience. I think part of the reason why personal testimony has lost so much of its power, is, and, and maybe you've been in these situations where somebody was sharing their Jesus story with you, but they focused a lot on the salacious details before Jesus, right? And so a lot of, a lot of the focus of the action was on the person uh, rather than on Jesus himself. Elevate Jesus in your story. Uh, give Jesus his due place. Right, Not everybody's story is the same. Some people, you, you may have a very uh, Paul-like conversion, though I, I don't know that you've been struck blind on the road to Damascus, but you may have kind of a dramatic turnaround conversion story. Uh, your story may be more like mine, which is a little bit uh, slower developing. Uh, that would be the story of C.S. Lewis, who set out to intellectually disprove Christianity and in the process, came to believe it. Or you may be a child of the church. You may have grown up your entire life uh, believing about Jesus. You may, you, there may never be a moment. You may never know a moment when you didn't know Jesus. And that's okay too. But for each and every person, uh, for each and every Christian, you have a Jesus story. And it's important that you know it and can point people to Jesus in it. The second play in Paul's playbook, after he tells his Jesus story, his conversion experience, is he also points to his good life or to his blameless life. Um, Paul uh, and his friends have been repeatedly accused of stirring up trouble In fact, we saw this uh, several weeks ago in a lot of the Gentile cities to where Paul is gone. uh, It ends up causing problems, right? This is a a common theme in Paul's life that wherever he goes in both Jewish and Gentile context, uh, he gets accused of disrupting society, of of being a bad citizen, of seeking to dethrone Caesar, and repeatedly, and, and Luke is at pains to show us this over and over and over again, repeatedly... Paul and his friends are vindicated. Repeatedly Luke shows us that that when when it when they come before the law the law says not guilty. That there's nothing that these men have done nothing wrong. Listen to Paul's defense before the Roman governor Felix in Acts 24 verse 10. Paul is uh, brought to Caesarea where the Roman governor is and um, the Jews come there trying to get Paul back to Jerusalem, and so uh, the governor gives both a hearing, and, and this is what Paul says uh, when it's his turn. Verse 10 of chapter 24, he says, "'Knowing that for many years you've been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense.'" There's that word again. "'You can verify that it's not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem.'" And they didn't find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring against me. But this I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. Two years later. Paul is still in custody, uh, and Felix is replaced by Festus. And here's what he says as he makes his appeal to Festus, another Roman governor, Acts 25, verse 7. When Festus had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against against him, Paul, that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense. Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? Now here's why this is a crucial question. Twice already the Jews have sought to ambush and kill Paul. So Paul knows... And it, le- and it seems as if the Roman governor, right, he's a politician, uh, he's, new, he's new to the territory, he doesn't want to make the locals mad if he doesn't have to, so he wants to try to do these Jewish leaders a favor, and, and Paul can see that Festus is leaning that way, but Paul knows that if he goes back to Jerusalem, he's dead. And he also knows, back in chapter 23, verse 11, that Jesus promised him he would go to Rome. That he would testify about Jesus in Rome. So, with that decision before him, go back to Jerusalem and likely be killed. Verse 10, Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die... I don't seek to escape death, but if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you will go. So Paul not only defends his way of life. He not only says, listen, I have have done nothing wrong. It's been proven again and again and again. But now he makes use of his rights as a Roman citizen. You see, just because you lived in the Roman Empire doesn't mean you were a Roman citizen. If your country, like Israel, was occupied by Rome, well, then you were just occupied. You didn't have the rights of citizenship. But Paul, by birth, is a Roman citizen. That means he can't be tortured or flogged without due process. And it means he has the right to appeal to Caesar. And he realizes at this moment that it's time to use his rights. And so I, w- I want to talk about that for a minute. Paul is not afraid to use his rights when necessary, but he uses them not for self preservation, but to advance the cause of Christ. That's a key difference. Paul doesn't simply use his rights to keep himself out of trouble. He uses them to advance the cause of Christ. He's happy to give them up or use them them dependent on the moment. And we can learn the same. So what about us? Like Paul, do we live a life that is consistent with our message? Can we, when confronted with a hostile crowd of opponents, say, I've done nothing wrong. Is the gospel the only stumbling block? Now, this is not a call to be perfect, right? Let's talk about the difference between a sinless life and a blameless life. You'll often hear that word blameless used throughout the Bible, a blameless life, right? A sinless life is an impossibility, right? Because of our sinful natures, We cannot live a sinless life. Paul did not live a sinless life. But we can strive for a blameless life. That means that when people seek to accuse us, there's nothing that they can accuse us of. There's no real wrongdoing to be found. That's what a blameless life is. Peter talks about this in 1 Peter. Living in such a way that when people try to accuse you of doing evil... They instead have to praise you for your good works. That's the kind of life that Paul points to. Robbie Zacharias uh, is just the latest example of high-profile Christians whose secret lives undermine the good news of Jesus. Uh, May that not be so. Again, we're not not talking about uh, living flawless Perfect lives. In fact, that's one of the main critiques of Christianity. Is it not that we don't seem to be real people? No, we can be honest about our brokenness and honest about our fallenness. It's not as if we're trying to hide anything or cover it up. But we seek to live a good life so that the good news of Jesus is the only stumbling block in our lives. So Paul told his story Uh, He pointed his opponents back to his life, his blameless way of life. But then ultimately, finally, he rested on a different judge, right? The the final thing that we see Paul doing in these chapters is appealing to his conscience. Uh, In chapter 23, verse 1, he says, Before the Jewish council... Brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. By the way, that got him punched in the mouth. Chapter 24, before Felix, verse 15, excuse me, verse 16, he says, So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. What Paul's saying is that even as he stands before all of these courts, before all of these judges, before all of these hearings, what he's able to say is that his conscience is clear. In, in other words, he is confident that he is in the right. How does he get there? How does one get a clear conscience? Is it because Paul has been faithful to tell the story of Jesus over and over and over again? Yes and no. Is it because Paul has lived a blameless life or sought to? Yes and no. Paul actually gives us a clue to his conscience in 1 Corinthians 4. So if you want to turn there, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians chapter 4 He's having to defend his ministry against people who say that he's a a sub-apostle. He's not as good as the other apostles who have come through. And he says this, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Now, here's here's the thing I want us to hear. Verse 3. But with me... It is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. Paul says, I'm not worried about being judged by human courts. What you think about me doesn't matter. Now, I'd say most of us can, can get on board with that. We like that sentiment. It sounds very American of Paul, right? I don't care what you think about me, right? But how do we usually answer that? I don't care what you think about me. It only matters what I think about me. Right? That's, that's, that's the way we would answer that. That's good Disney theology right there. Your judgment doesn't matter as long as I uh, judge myself okay. Self-esteem. To thine own self be true. That sort of thing. But that's not where Paul goes. Look at how he continues. He says, I do not even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. So Paul says, I don't care what you think about me. But you know what? It's not even important what I think about me. I don't I don't know of anything against me, but that doesn't mean I'm not guilty. The one that I appeal to, he says, it is the Lord who judges me. Now, let that sit for a minute. Is that not absolutely terrifying? I mean, is that, is that a court of appeal you want to step into? It is the Lord who judges me? How in the world would that give me a clear conscience? I mean, when you think about all of the hidden thoughts and feelings, all of the bad motives that Zach mentioned earlier, when you think about every rash word ever spoken, all of the careless things done, for all of that, as, as we see in the Bible, when all of that is brought into the light, can you have a clear, how, how could Paul have a clear conscience by saying, it is the Lord who judges me? Well, it's because he believes the gospel. Romans 8, 1. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. No no sentence of judgment. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he has come and taken the wrath of God on himself. Just as we read earlier in Galatians 3, he became a curse for us, which means there is no more curse left. There is no more judgment left. So Paul can walk into the throne room of God confident because he knows that another pleads for him. That's what we just sang. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. That's Paul's confidence. Paul's confidence is not, Lord, look at everything I've done. I have done my job. I have discharged my duty faithfully. That's, that's not the leg he stands on. He doesn't, he doesn't say, Lord, look at my blameless life. I did the best that I could. That's not the leg that he stands on. No, he stands on Jesus and on Jesus alone. And out of that comes a blameless life. And out of that comes the confidence to share his story, even with people who want to kill him. It's out of that understanding. So what about you? Can you sing with gladness the words that we sang before the sermon? When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That's the beauty of the gospel. I pray that you would believe it this morning. We're going to begin moving our prayer time to after the sermon, um, one because historically that's been the case in the history of the Christian Church that the time of prayer has followed the sermon, uh, but uh, in hopes also that as we hear from God in His Word that gives us um, that gives us fuel for our prayers. Uh, let me invite you to the most important thing we do at Grace Fellowship. Now, if you were to now, when I say that, if I ask that question, what's the most important thing we do at Grace Fellowship? Um, what what is the first thing that comes to mind? Just in your in your brain, you don't speak it out loud. Um, now, hold that thought for just a minute. Um, where does all the when you're driving your car? Where does all the action happen? Where does all the work take place? Is it in the is it in the cab of the vehicle? No, right. It's under the hood. It's in all the places that you can't see. That's, that's where the real action takes place. And so I would invite you, right, typically when we think of the most important thing the church does, we think about the, the visible public stuff. But actually the most important thing, the engine of the church is our time of prayer. Uh, and so I want to invite you. We pray before the worship service at 10 o'clock every Sunday morning. It's an elder-led time of prayer. Uh, if you would like to be healed, anointed with oil, we do that then. Just let us know ahead of time. Uh, and if you can't make that, we have a Tuesday morning prayer time when our prayer team gathers and prays for different needs within the church. And if you can't make that, then I encourage you, if you would like to start another prayer meeting sometime during the week when you can make it, please do so. Um, these are the. This is this is where the work of the church happens. The, the 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 mission of the church does not advance apart from prayer. It's so interesting that when we read through the Book of Acts, we get all time we, we get all kinds of sermons and speeches and and activity, but some, what's never explained for us is the prayer meeting of the church. But what Luke tells us again and again and again and again is that the church was praying, all the time praying. I can guarantee you that as, as Paul is in prison for over two years awaiting trials, going through these different trials, he's praying. He's receiving encouragement from Jesus. And so let's, let's go before the Lord uh, and let's seek his face now. Our God and our King, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul's confidence and boldness and love. A confidence and boldness and love that come from you that come from his identity and knowing of you, knowing that he is secure, knowing that he is not guilty, not because of himself, but because he's in Christ. Lord, I pray that that would be true for each one of us, that we would have a clear conscience because we rest on the ultimate judge. You, God the just, satisfied to look on your son and pardon us. And out of that pardon, giving us a blameless life. Out of that pardon, uh, living faithfully to tell other people about you. Lord, would you revolutionize our church with the stories of these early Christians? Would you change us from the inside out? Father, we again pray for the Vincens. We thank you, Lord, that um, Ivy and Clay have past the the first uh, visa hurdle uh, and now lord pray that they um, would clear the second and uh, lord that you would be, continue to open doors for them so that they can be with their dad uh, in what looked to be his last months would you provide the funding necessary to make that happen lord we also pray uh, for neil as he goes for a biopsy this week and pray that you would just give the doctor's wisdom as to future treatment for him Father, we also pray for Alma this morning, uh, suffering with severe back pain. God, we pray that you would bring her relief and healing. Father, we thank you for our fostering families. God, we thank you for their faithfulness to you uh, in this great service of love and pray that you would use them as tangible ambassadors of your grace in the lives of children who desperately need it. Father, uh, on a national level, uh, we pray that you would um, bring peace, that you would bring unity to your church, God. That even as we heard earlier, Lord, that we would that we would see that the church is a body uh, of diverse people from diverse stations in life, gathered under the headship of Jesus. Lord, would you continue to purify and unify your church? And Lord, globally, uh, we pray for the countries of Burkina Faso and Cambodia and pray that the light of the gospel would permeate both of those places and that you would bring a great renewal uh, of salvation in both of those places. Will we bring all of these prayers before you in the matchless name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Let's stand uh, and give thanks to God. Uh, if you're giving this morning, uh, you can give online or you can give uh, out in the gathering area where there's some